loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking male vampires. We're talking child companions. And we're talking... Tommy, can you hear me? I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. What was that? Okay, so remember back in the day (laughs) when Rosie O'Donnell had her talk show? Yeah, I used to watch it with my mom. You know how she had that picture of Tom Cruise on her desk because she was pretending that she was hetero and she was totally right. obsessed with him? Oh my god, yes, 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 yes. So it's really funny when you think about it then that we have like the two talk shows of like, the, I guess really Oprah went into the 2000s, but you know, you have the Tom Cruise couch thing with Oprah and then the Rosie O'Donnell love affair on Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because back in the day, it was a big deal to be on these talk shows and to have talk show people talking about you. It was, and... I think we still have it. I mean, Ellen has her talk show. The View's done. I guess there's the talk now. I don't know. You know what? It's not one of those podcasts. We're talking Interview with the Vampire today. Yes, we are. I mean, it's all in keeping with the idea of interviews, Trace. We are so on brand with this. Oh, fuck. That's a great idea. You know what? I walk that back. You're right. (laughs) We should have done like a compilation of like all of Tom Cruise's interview, like sound bites of like the worst interviews he's ever done and like just played them at the start of the episode. Sure. Yeah, I'll get on that immediately. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have time for that? No, no, not so much. Okay. (laughs) So we are talking about Interview with the Vampire, and we're talking about it because it's its 25th anniversary. Yes, it is. I feel like we're doing a lot of anniversaries lately because we had House on Hundred Hill, Pet of the Paradise, this. Mm -hmm. We had... Nope, nope. I think this is the last one, actually. I... Had not seen this movie in a very long time. And honestly, when I was watching it, I realized I don't think I've ever seen this movie in its entirety. I mean, I have, but like in pieces because it always played on TV. Again, just like some of these past movies we talked about, like one of those TNT, TBS things where I was like, oh, I always came across it. I've seen the last half of it a lot, I think. I very rarely saw the first half of it. And how are you defining the last half? Like, where is that intersection for you? I think around the time that Claudia kills Lestat. Okay. So kind of when the film begins to pick up a little bit. Which is the the hour point of the movie. (laughs) This is a weird film. I'm not going to lie. I believe that I definitely didn't see it in theaters. But I think I rented it when I was old enough and starting to get into horror. And then realizing that this is... Basically what people would now call elevated or prestige horror because kind it's of. not really scary. It's almost too commercial. Like I was actually going back through our old episodes because I was a intrigued to know if we had done any other vampire films apart from Daughters of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Answer. We have not, yeah. which is kind of shocking considering we've done three motherfucking werewolf episodes. Right? I mean, because I'm, I'm not a werewolf junkie, but honestly, I'm not a big vampire fan. But that being said, vampires are inherently more queer than werewolf films are. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like we've deliberately refrained from doing them because they're almost too obvious. Maybe. maybe. Well, and I, I won't lie to you, th- this movie is super gay. Oh, it's so gay. Like, so obviously gay. Very much so. And even, like, Neil Jordan, uh, the director, uh, who has, like, he got this gig because he had just come off The Crying Game, which was super successful, also deals with some transgender politics. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I don't know if they're handled tastefully or not. 
They're okay. They're actually progressive for the time. Whether or not it's held up is another question. Gotcha. But then he also directed um after this, like in the mid two thousands, the Breakfast on Pluto, which is the one with um uh Killian, Killian Murphy. Killian Murphy. Yes, Killian. that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Have you always called him Cillian? Maybe. Who can, care? <laughs> who can remember and who can care? Anyway, he also directed your favorite film from last year, Greta. Mm-hmm. Um, I was expecting no. More he's about. done. He's done tons of gay shit, and this isn't even his only vampire film because he did Byzantium with what's her face, uh, Gemma Arterton, and there there's another. Uh, is it Emily Browning? Yes, I believe so. Hey, don't correct us if we're wrong. It's fine. I'll look it up later. Um, yeah, no, it's so, really it, not that important. No one saw that movie, <laughs> but he himself is not gay. He is not. Nope. And we'll get into it, because I think we'll have a whole section talking about the... Yeah, you know what? Hey, okay, I'm sorry. My favorite catchphrase, we'll get to it in a bit. Because I haven't read the novel that this is based... I haven't read any Anne Rice books, to be honest. But apparently the novel is much more homoerotic than this movie is. I think not even homoerotic, it's actually queer. Like, yes. they are in relationships with each other. Yes, that's how I gather it, too. And really, when you think about it, though, like, the mirror... The, the plot... I use the word plot loosely because there really isn't much of a plot in this movie. It's very not mainstream. So the fact that it did get, um, well, we'll go into it right now, get released on November 11th, 1994 by Warner Brothers Pictures with a $60 million budget in 1994. Mm -hmm. Cha-ching. It's kind of bizarre. I guess maybe they had a lot of faith in Anne Rice and and like just the book itself. And of course, Neil Jordan, who as we said, just coming off the, the success of The Crying Game. But it's also, like, just over two hours. So it's like, what what, what was the decision-making process here? Historical lady porn. What? The decision. It was like, okay, there's this target market of... Like, if you think about it, this is kind of the original Fifty Shades. It's a very readily accessible, highly sought after publication that catered to bored housewives who were into the idea of like some guy on guy vampire action. Mm. And they were like, okay, we've got this super prestigious director who literally just won an Oscar for this other film. Oh, did he wait? Did he win for he won for the crying game? Screenplay. Oh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah. So I think they looked at it and said, you know what, the constellation has really aligned. They were able to get big 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 names for this i mean admittedly they're bigger names i think now than they might have been at the time well tom cruise yeah i was gonna say because so tom cruise apparently was given a 10 million dollar salary for this movie as well as a percentage of the profits um at the time that was supposedly enormously high also really weird considering that Anne rice did not want him to play lestat she was vehemently against it Mm -hmm. apparently like so she wrote the script for this movie, and she gets the sole screenwriting credit, but Neil Jordan apparently did extensive rewrites after the fact. Shocker. Yeah, and because of the Writers Guild's, like, terms or whatever, she still got the writing credit. Um, Neil Jordan doesn't get the credit, but I don't... I'm curious to know how much of this movie, like, percentage-wise, is still Anne Rice's, because she was, like, basically pushed off the set, like... I get the impression, based on some of her quotes, because her quotes are very much like, the studio didn't want me, they, they, they rejected all my ideas, blah, 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 blah. Totally buy it. I also wonder, though, how pushy do you think she was? And I get it, it's her property, but I wonder if maybe there was just a really contentious relationship, because, again, they didn't bring her back to write Queen of the Damned. So if, if Warner Brothers is like, nope, not working with her again... Yeah, it really could have gone either way. I imagine that when you're involving the author... 
part of the struggle creatively is to get them to understand that things have to be different for a film. Like mm-hmm. it's not a book on screen. It has to be its own thing. Right. But at the same time, you also have to recognize, okay, well, we're trying to cater to the legion of fans that this particular property has. And let's face it, this book series was fucking huge. Like they'd been trying to bring this to the screen since it was published in the late seventies, which I had no idea it was published in the like, 1976. And mm-hmm. the rights were purchased by Paramount Pictures like right before the book was published. So like they movie studios knew this was a hit even then. But then the script was in development hell because there were too many van- like like vampire movies coming out around the time. It was like where we are with zombies, you know, like a couple years ago, where it's like it's oversaturation. So Paramount, I guess, eventually like sold them to Lorimar, and then they sold them to Warner Brothers, and then that's how we got this movie. It makes sense if you think about it, because the late 70s, there was an awful lot of vampire horror films coming out around then. Is that the Hammer period, too? Is that the late 70s? Or is that I the 50s? I believe so. Oh, God, God we're going to be so <laughs> We may be showing our, uh, our lack, <laughs> lack of knowledge, of knowledge no, about that. I've but then in the 80s, it's like, you're not going to release this because you're then competing with all the slashers. quote-unquote teeny bopper slashers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess you do things like Fright Night and The Hunger. Well, actually, no, The Hunger flopped when it came out. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, Fright Night moves into more horror comedy territory, which I would argue that this one has quite a few comedic elements in it. Is that just because it's aged in the last 25 years? I don't know, man. When Tom Cruise is dancing with that corpse, it's pretty funny and intentionally so. True. I prefer it when he pushes the piano teacher off the bench. Oh, yeah. No. Okay. Personal life stuff. Like, I, I don't like Tom Cruise, but goddamn if I don't think he makes very good movies and he's a very good actor. Uh, okay, well, we're going to talk about his performance later, because okay. I do not see that in this particular film. Oh, bullshit. I, I, okay, fine. That, we'll talk, okay. But before we get to your plot, though, I do want to talk about, just like, finish like, with the development, like, just kind of like the, how this film was made and things like, not how it was made, but how it came to be. No, tell me everything about how it was made. I, I mean, don't know, to know everything. everything. No, not everything. I will say, though, so the production company, Geffen Productions, or whatever, it's a Geffen Films or something. I immediately think of Beetlejuice every time I see that logo. So when this movie started, I was like, Beetlejuice! Oh, I'm watching Interview with the Vampire. (laughs) Definitely not the same film. Yeah, no, not the same film. But, okay, that means nothing to you. I guess because I watched Beetlejuice a lot as a kid. So, like, I'm I'm so used to the Geffen logo popping up and hearing, Deo, Pizza Deo. But, (laughs) that's it. Um, Yeah. So, no, uh, Anne Rice did not want Tom Cruise to be in this movie. She wanted Julian Sands. I know Julian Sands from Arachnophobia. <laughs> right. Okay. But um, he was apparently only famous at the time for A Room with a View. And obviously, because this was a bizarre screenplay to spend $60 million on, they were like, uh, we need someone famous. We need Tom Cruise. Yeah, they needed someone that they could fucking sell the film with, obviously. Yeah, but then apparently she was so against it that then she was like, well, we need Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise to switch parts. Because then she was like, well, if if we have to have Tom Cruise, I'd rather have Tom Cruise play Louis and Brad Pitt play Lestat. How different would that would be? Yes, I'm sure Brad Pitt would have been happier with it. Uh, did you read his opinions on making this movie? <laughs> I did, yeah. yes. And I'm inclined to kind of agree with him. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? 
Sure. So in the aftermath, uh, Brad Pitt has talked, not extensively, but he's made comments about the fact that he feels that the film version of Louis is not as interesting as the book version. And what attracted him originally to the role was the meteor parts of the book, which then get kind of, you know, washed away in the film version. And mm-hmm. he finds his character very boring and whiny. And I agree with that. I agree. No, I mean, th- this film to me does not come to life fully until Claudia comes in, occasion Dunst comes into the picture. Yeah, because it's Louis not a pleasant character to be right. I guess that's the point. But I do feel like the tone of the film is kind of going against whatever Brad Pitt is doing with this. I mean, well, both what he's doing with the character and also how it's written. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have anything to do with it. But then he also doesn't do anything once he's got it. Well, and apparently the production for him was miserable as well. So bad at one point. He basically said, um, and this is an interview with Entertainment Weekly in 2011, he called the production six months of fucking darkness because of the exclusive night night shoots. Um, fucking is an exact quote, by the way. It felt mostly in London. And the Back when he was still drinking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, that's... <laughs> We're going to go there? I'm just saying, you're a little bit more loose-lipped and kind of like willing to bite the hand of the master. Oh. Yes, we're also going to go there later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I continue with the quote. Anyway, film mostly in London in the depths of winter, which sent him into a depression during the film. So he was method acting. So basically, though, he tried to buy himself out of the movie. He went to Geffen, um, one of the producers, and said, how do I get out of this? And he basically would have to have to have paid, I want to say, like $10 million just to not do the movie. And he was like, fuck. And then he, he got stuck doing the movie. Which ended up being a huge boon for him, and it was very well received. I mean, I I didn't look at reviews to see whether or not anyone singled him out, because I can't imagine anyone said that he was great. But at the same time, film was a big box office hit, so it did well for him at the end of the day. Yeah, um, it was it was good. So that's a that's a perfect segue then into the reception. So yeah, this movie opened at number one with thirty six point four million dollars in ninety four money. Yeah, 94 money. But still, though, I mean, so it made over half of its budget back in the first weekend. But what I thought was interesting was it opened up against Disney's The Santa Claus, and Santa Claus was number two. The following week, Santa Claus was number three. The following week, it was number one. Because, again, we're talking November 11th. So mm-hmm. on Disney's part, that was smart release strategy because you release it before Thanksgiving, and then it does whatever. But then it, you know, two weeks later is Thanksgiving weekend, and then it does gangbusters because it's holiday money. Right. And to clarify, that's American Thanksgiving. Yes, I apologize. American Thanksgiving. (laughs) This movie, though, kept dropping, but it went on to gross $105.3 million domestically, so it made its money back, plus $118.4 million overseas for a worldwide total of $223.7 million. It was a hit. It was a big old hit. Yeah. When you're talking about a movie about gay vampires back in the 90s... Pretty good. Yeah. And so, yeah. But but what I was shocked to find out, though, this movie, which I thought was universally beloved by audiences and critics alike, was not universally beloved by critics. It wasn't hated, but we're looking, and again, we talked about Rotten Tomatoes, but, and how, like, you know, older films, less reviews, blah, blah, blah. 62% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.92 out of 10. The top critic score, and I, I think there were only, like, 12 reviews, but it was, like, 42%. So... Yeah, mainline critics, like, Ebert gave it a three, you know, but, like, there were some others that were like, oh, it's, like, a two out of five, because they called it bloated, uh, it it missed the point of the novel, Um, there was no plot, it was aimless, it looked pretty, but no substance, blah, 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 but, of course, the ones that were singled out were Tom Cruise and Kirsten Dunst, they were the two Mm -hmm. actors that were singled out the most. Right. 
because they get the fun parts of the movie <laughs> exactly and and that's you know it's like when we're talking about protagonist syndrome which we i feel like we've mentioned in every single episode over the past like couple months <laughs> brad pitt is ostensibly your protagonist in this movie and he is dull as toast yeah obviously not anywhere near the same genre but it's really easy to make your protagonist boring as fuck but think about tree from happy death day uh, there's a fucking protagonist that shines like it's not impossible to do yeah it's just that it so often feels like oh well to make this this protagonist compelling i have to have them go through the most boring arc possible yeah louis doesn't have to be this boring well, the, the thing is, though, and it, it, I, I've forgotten the end of the movie, like, with the Christian Slater, like, wanting to become a vampire. His whole point in this movie is to tell his story to a reporter to spread mm-hmm. the word and tell people, hey, if he, if you ever get offered the chance to be a vampire, it don't. Sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's very much like, it strains credibility, you know, it's like, why? Why, why, why do this? What does it matter? And then, of course, you know, Christian Slater's like, misses the point of his whole story. And then Brad Pitt gets pissed off and just leaves. <laughs> and that's the end of your movie. Yeah. But, well, anyway, sorry. I just, like, spoiled the ending before we even got to it. Audience scores. God, 80- spoilers. <laughs> 86% from audiences, though, with an average score of 8.24 out of 10. Metacritic is 59 out of 100 based on 19 reviews, but your user score, 86 out of 100. So the user score for Rotten Tomatoes and audience and Metacritic aligns on this film. Okay, so what did you give this movie out of curiosity? I ended up giving it a four. Honestly, I really liked it. I do understand all the complaints. And after seeing like the contemporaneous reviews and reception for it, I was very much like, huh. But I found myself enthralled for most of this movie, if not with Brad Pitt, but at least with the movie itself. Because I did have a lot of fun with it. But, I mean, like I said, it doesn't come to life for me, really. Like, you have some fun moments with Tom Cruise, but it doesn't come to life until Kirsten Dunst enters the picture. And she's in this movie for exactly one hour. I clocked it. She enters it at the 37-minute mark, and she leaves it at the hour and 37-minute mark. Leaves it. <laughs> I mean... That's she, one way of saying what happens to her. She dissolves out of it. <laughs> she turns into a charcoal briquette. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually found that scene very upsetting. It is. I distinctly remember that. Like, my one memory of the time that I saw this before was that particular scene. Well, yes. And I think we'll probably have a whole section to talk about Claudia, just because her arc in this movie is probably... It's amazing, but it's also very uncomfortable. Oh, God. (laughs) This whole movie... This movie is prefaced on just a whole fuck ton of uncomfortable subjects, and I don't know if they even meant it to be that way in some of these cases. Well, I think the thing is, though, it's in a, a, everything in this movie is very sexual, and they kind of pull back on the sexuality of a lot of it, minus the oh, titties yeah. we see in the theater scenes. I was actually shocked at how non-sexual this movie is, considering that vampires are literally all about sexuality and and sex. And they are (laughs) in this movie, too. I mean, every single time that someone gets bitten, it's like it's basically a sex scene. And maybe that was the intention. It's like, we're not going to actually have sex, but we're going to have make the act of drinking blood the sex act. I agree. And I also disagree with that. No, I, I, I get it. But like, you know, when Tom Cruise bites... Brad Pitt in the beginning, and they're floating in the air. That's the sex scene right there. That's the only time I feel it, though. Yeah, but then when they're draining the woman in the beginning, too, like, on the bench, that feels very much like a threesome scene to me. Mm, yeah, okay. I can see it. Was uh, she, When she's like, is his kiss as deep as yours? And she's and uh, he goes, deeper. And I'm like, yeah, oh, they're talking uh... about their dicks. <laughs> 
But then it's so uncomfortable watching Brad Pitt eat her lips off because why would you bite someone on the mouth? It was very unusual. Again, weird choices, but I still enjoyed it. What what did you end up giving it? I had it as a four and I downgraded it to three and a half. Oh, see, okay. I baited you because I actually saw you give it a three. Oh, maybe I had it as a three and a half and I switched it to a three. Wow. Can't even remember your shit. No, not really. (laughs) I kind of tuned in and out. So there were whole sections where I was really engaged and really interested. And mm-hmm. then there were whole other times where I was like, pretty costumes, me like. That's very, yeah, very much the case. Besides the money going to the stars, a lot of this went to the set design. And it does look amazing. That's the other thing, too. You know, it's a fucking period piece. It's a period piece gifted $60 million that made over $200 million worldwide. Mm-hmm. Again. In 1994, money. It's so weird. I know, right? It's probably like double, maybe like two and a half times that today. Uh, I'm not going to be able to back this up with any kind of authority, but I think for a long time, if you consider this a horror film proper, I think this was one of the highest grossing horror films for quite a period of time. Yes, and it was the highest grossing vampire film until, I want to say Twilight came out, maybe. Oh, yeah. To this day, it is still the highest grossing R-rated vampire movie of all time. Go. Gauntlet throne Hollywood. Except I feel like Hollywood doesn't actually care about vampire films anymore either. I mean, again, but when you have Robert Pattinson cast as the Batman and people are still making sparkly vampire jokes, the, the, the subgenre is going to be away for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, maybe it needs to bring back adults. Maybe that's the, the sort of key takeaway from this is that you cast what people perceive to be genuinely talented people that is not a knock against robert pattinson it's more an acknowledgement that his public persona has not yet recovered no and but that's so shit i mean i haven't seen a lot of his post twilight work but i've read about it and apparently he's a great actor now he and k stewart are both great actors oh, in nearly agreed. everything outside of the twilight franchise absolutely and people again still give her shit for those movies too although i think I think sometimes, because like, she has a tendency to be a little bit emotionless for me, mm-hmm. which is why I'm excited to see Charlie's Angels, because I want to see her have fun. Right? Yeah. Just <laughs> let some of these people smile every once in a while. Exactly. Oh, shit. Did I just tell the girl that she should smile more? Mm. Okay. Let's do a plot recap. Okay. So what, I can yeah. talk about things that'll make people uncomfortable that are not my doing. Yes. What What is this movie about? <laughs> okay. So... The film opens with a framing device in which reporter Malloy, Christian Slater, who was originally meant to be River Phoenix, but then River Phoenix died. But did you read, though, so Christian Slater gave his entire salary for this movie to River Phoenix's, like, two favorite charities or something? I did, and it seemed very sweet. That, hey, I I am not a huge Christian Slater fan. I like him in Heathers. I haven't really seen him in anything else where I've been like, oh, he's talented. But I think it's also because he's a very smarmy, like, looking and sounding guy. This is true. And he plays those parts a lot. Although I haven't Mm -hmm. seen Uwe Boll's Alone in the Dark, so maybe that will change my mind. (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing that Uwe Boll does will change your mind on any topic. (laughs) Um, Except maybe wanting to punch him out in the boxing ring. (laughs) Right. Uh, But yeah, I mean, he's fine in this movie. He has maybe five minutes of screen time. Yeah. I mean, he... He does what he needs to do. Sidebar, though, if you want a fun double bill, you should rent The Wife with Glenn Close because he also plays a smarmy reporter. He's basically doing the exact same thing. He's just interviewing oh. her for the entire movie, but also trying to, like, 
trap her into saying things that she doesn't want to say and then missing the point at the end. I feel like there was something recently he did that I did like. like, And I was like, oh, good for him. But I cannot for the life of me remember what it was. Oh, but there was a movie called Mindhunters that he's in, which is not a great oh movie. God, but no, <laughs> I really like it, though. I really like it. But he gets the best death in the movie. <gasps> Spoilers again. Yeah, but I mean, it's fine. It's, no one's going to see it. <laughs> I enjoy watching that movie, but it is unabashedly terrible. It's bad. The killer reveal is probably what... Had the killer reveal been better, I think that movie would have been elevated a bit more. Is that a Rennie Harlan? I think so, actually. Yeah. I think so? Yeah, but, I think you so, know, too. Val Kilmer's in it. Oh, yeah. Before it gets all bloated. <laughs> yep. Mm. LL Cool J. Mm. Oh, oh yeah. It... That's how you know it's Rennie Harlan. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> okay. So, interview. Okay. Oh, wait. We're literally one line into No, this no, no, I know. One thing, though, I forgot that this was called Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Chronicles. Oh, God, no. <laughs> When that showed up on the title card, I was like, Are, really? Really, Warner Brothers? We're doing that? Yeah, because they thought they had a fucking franchise on their hands. I'm telling... Th- uh. It's still a, a surprise that they didn't proceed with it. Maybe that's your your cue that Anne Rice was a huge old D-bag or whatever. And I am not saying she is, listeners. I'm re- I knew nothing about this, but I'm just saying, like, I do think there's blame on the studio for this, but I think we can probably talk about, like, the, the lead into Queen of the Damned probably towards the end oh. of the episode. I know. <laughs> I know. Because you, you watched Queen of the Damned after watching this, didn't you? I did. And let me tell you, if you want to improve your standing on any one film, watch Queen of the Damned afterwards. <laughs> um, but... Based on everything I've read, it just, it leads me to believe that she was quote unquote difficult and might have been too pushy. Right. But again, I'm basing that on just my opinion mm-hmm. on what, what I've read. She could be a sweet lady. I'm sure she is. But, you know, and again, this is her property. She's protective of it. I totally get that. Yeah. And we'll talk more about her connection to this property as it has aged a little bit later as well, because of course... She's back, baby. So we'll get there. Yes, but she also went like super Christian or Catholic for a while. I mean, I guess she's always been religious, but like she went, she was writing like religious books for a while when she was on a break. Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Continue. Okay. okay. So Malloy is, he more or less picks up Louis. Like, if you want to do your queer reading, it honestly seems like, hey, here's a grinder date where I'm going to say, I'm looking for interviews, and this man shows up in my apartment, and then we have a long conversation. No, I, it, yeah, literally from the get-go, like, their interactions seem very gay. <laughs> yeah. So Louis is, of course, played by Brad Pitt, and he is a 200-year-old vampire. Uh, so Louis proceeds to tell Malloy his vampiric origin story, beginning with his wife's death in 1790. His wife and baby's death. Yeah, I was trying to remember if the kid was in there, but they really just want to focus on his grief, so I couldn't remember if it was important. Which, random though, apparently in the book, he has no wife and child, it's his brother's death that he's getting over, but I guess they were like, America likes families. Well, and this was apparently one of Anne Rice's attempts to de-gay or soften the gayness a little bit by having him have a heterosexual past as opposed to no romantic relationship beforehand. Well, okay, I will hold off on bringing up the gay stuff because, again, we have stuff to talk about with that. I mean, we're here all night, so. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so at the time of his family's death, Louis is 24, and he is the master of a slave plantation. Yep. And 
You know what? I'm not even going to attempt to do this justice. I'm just going to redirect people. If you want to hear a good take on this terrible situation, I would encourage you to check out Attack of the Queer Wolf's conversation because Nay goes in on this part of the film. Oh, do they cover this? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Good. Yeah. So it's really good. They focus a lot on how uncomfortable the idea is that your hero is introduced in a sympathetic light while he's owning other people as property. But yeah, Nay does a really great job of unpacking that and why people should not be okay with it. Just in case, you know, you maybe were. <laughs> so in addition to owning a slave plantation, he is obviously a widower. He's become a compulsive gambler. He's a drunk and he is a desirer of death. And this brings Lestat into his life. So one night he is propositioned and he's turned into a vampire by this guy who has taken an eye to him. And of course, why? Because Brad Pitt is so hunky. Yes, and then he sees really bad CGI statues moving their eyes and blinking. Mm-hmm. Yes, but he can't describe it in words, and then <laughs> proceeds to describe it to us in words. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so many things that maybe shouldn't have been included from the translation. It's mm, fine. Mm. Anyway, okay. So the two of them become a pair. Lestat trains, in quotation marks, because he does really nothing. But he pretends to train Louis in life as a vampire, and in exchange, Louis allows him to stay in his massive mansion that he has made off of the backs of black people. With his lead slave, Tandy Newton. Yes! <laughs> I've got a funny anecdote about that, but we'll get to her in a moment. Okay. So Lestat kills without discrimination, and he's particularly joyful about killing the New Orleans Upper Crust Society. So there's a funny scene where they fight over a dog. Yay. But really what they're ultimately fighting about is Louis' refusal to kill and his tendency to prefer killing animals because for some reason he can't just drain. Like, this was my common complaint throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. Why can't he just drink some human blood instead of and not them. kill them? Yeah. It's not like a one or the other option, and yet the film treats it as though it is. This is also when we get Chekhov's mind-reading ability, where Tom Cruise Uh, is like, I can read minds, you should try it too. I can't. Oh, well, the dark gift is different for all of us. (laughs) And then no one else's dark gift ever shows up until Until Santiago (laughs) also has the same ability. And you're like, I thought everybody had a different ability. What the fuck? Yeah, it's fine. It's convenient. Yes. I did enjoy this old lady, though. She was quite funny. She's funny. Yeah. Okay. So things come to a head when Louis' slaves in a montage of voodoo-related bullshit rise up against them. Ooh, this movie does not handle race well. Let's I, just accept that and move on. 1994, baby. I mean, I'm not going to excuse it at all. Even yeah. in 94, this was not okay. <laughs> and he does kill Tandy Newton, right? Or is she, she just passed out? No, so he kills her okay. because it's like you can either believe that he bites her and then smothers her or he just kills her. Right, yeah. Uh, but one way or another, she's dead. And my anecdote that I mentioned mm-hmm. one minute ago <laughs> is that in my memory, I 100% remembered Bandy Newton as the companion. Like I thought she was the Madeline character. Oh, as of, of Kirsten Dunst? Mm-hmm. So oh. when she just dies here, I felt like I was having some kind of mini Seizure? stroke. <laughs> I was like, wait, I thought she dies in the Paris catacomb. No, yeah. 
I think I actually got her character confused with her character from Westworld because she wears an old-timey dress. Maybe. (laughs) So she did. And, uh, you know, Brad Pitt does the sensible thing. He lights the mansion on fire because he's like, no, I'm ready to die. So Mm -hmm. he's saved by Lestat and they move into a new rental property because apparently even though money was a big thing, it's also not a big thing. And they can just rent this nice house. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too. It's like Brad Pitt can let I'm sorry, Brad Pitt. uh, Lestat can let Louis go anytime, but he doesn't want to because he is obsessed with with him. him. Yes, he is. I mean, it's Brad Pitt, even with the bad hair. Yeah, it's Brad Pitt, dude. We have. I think we've talked about my dislike for long hair on men before, and that also pertains to seventeen hundreds like mm-hmm. long hair. <laughs> I just don't oh. like it. And there is not a reprieve to be found. No. in this movie because <laughs> everyone has it. Well, because they're all fucking old, right? It was the style <laughs> at the time, but yeah, that one scene where Kirsten Dunst cuts her hair and then it just immediately grows back. I was like, oh. These uh, poor dudes are going to have to live in an era of man buns because now, they can't cut that shit off. Wait, I ha- I have an issue, though, because so when Kirsten Dunst becomes a vampire, her hair changes to the doll, the curly haired doll hair. Mm-hmm. I was under the impression that whenever you become a vampire, whatever your hair was, the length it was when you became a vampire is the length it will stay. Hers styles itself. Yeah, it stays the same. It just gets super shiny and curly. And curly. <laughs> she didn't have curls when we meet her. It's because everybody gets like a blowout when you become a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) She got a straight up perm. (laughs) The dark forces give you hair to die for, but then you've got to live with it for the rest of your life. (laughs) The ammonium phygocalate in her hair is permanent and will never go away. And it just appeared out of nowhere. Fantastic. I love it. I salute you with a bend and snap. Yes. Okay. I was glad you got that. I had to delay it out just to make sure. Yeah, no, it was totally Louis Blonde. Anyway, okay, go ahead. Okay, so these two bitches are living like an old married couple. They're, you know, somehow just killing and pillaging without remorse, and they're never getting caught because, well, we're told later that there's an influx of new people coming to the shores all the time. Right. I don't know. Like, if people are just constantly showing up no blood and bite marks, I don't know how you're not getting a little bit suspicious. <sighs> well, th- okay. When Like, when they're eating the woman, like, in front of everybody, mm-hmm. I was like, well, maybe, because, you know, there's, like, the myth about vampires having hypnosis, so it's like, is there a way that they're, like, making people think they're just, like, kissing her? Yeah, like, sucking her. Yeah. But, they, but they don't make that clear. No, they never do. Uh, yeah, like Brad Pitt clearly has the powers to calm people or put them into a kind of stupor because that's what he does with the house lady after he turns uh, Kirsten Dunst. But yeah, it doesn't seem like it should apply to large groups of people at a distance. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so they fight, they bicker, blah, blah, blah. And then we get to the good stuff. So, well, he's out on a walk in a plague-ridden area. Louis discovers a young girl named Claudia, Carson Dunce, and in his hunger, he bites her. Fearful that he will lose Louis, Lestat turns Claudia, claiming her as his and Louis' daughter, which is the 18th century version of adopting a child to save the gay marriage. He literally says, like, she's our daughter, we're one big happy family, or something like that. And it's Mm -hmm. like, this is so gay, and I love it! But the movie's so resistant to, like, embrace it. Oh, of course. But I do wonder, like, was there anyone who went in 1994 and saw this movie and just thought, 
Yeah, it's just two dudes raising a little girl together. Well, that's a... Right? No homo. Well, that's the thing, though. The movie seems... Even though the relationship between Louis and Claudia isn't sexual, there is a lot of sexual tension in that relationship. And the movie seems more okay to embrace that than it does a sexual relationship between Louis and Lestat. Mm -hmm. To the point where I think Lestat at one point even comments on the fact that they're like lovers and Louis's like, she's my companion. Yes, (laughs) exactly. In the book, apparently it is much more clear to the point that Lestat takes on like husband or fatherly duties and Louis takes on motherly duties, which you can clearly see here in a paternalistic sense. But yeah, the film definitely seems, again, it's just gun-shy to pull the trigger and say like, yeah, these two are fucking and now they've got a little daughter. Yeah, um, again, I've got, I've, got, I've got a section on gay stuff. Not a long one, but I've got a little section on gay stuff. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back to our podcast, a little section on gay stuff. <laughs> That's this episode's <laughs> title right there. <laughs> There's a montage as Claudia kills her way over the course of the next 30 years. It's so cute. Oh, and her signature, the trailer line, by the way, the closing line of the trailer was, I want some more. Mm-hmm. Like a little Oliver Twisty. She is so good in this role. And to think that this is really her her first role is kind yes. of genuinely surprising. Because I think Kirsten Dunst gets a lot of flat. I mean, I, I, she's one of those actresses that I'm like, I defend her a lot because like, I feel like people think she can't act, even though I she don't... herself thinks that people think she can't act. Yes. She said that when she recently got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, she yeah. was like, thank you, because I'm sick and tired of people telling me that I suck. Well, also because she, she doesn't get awards, because she made a comment about not getting awards recognition because the only, I mean, she got a Golden Globe nomination for this. I think she might have gotten some recognition for Melancholia. Uh, maybe. I think people expected her to get a lot for Fargo, and it just didn't really uh, go away. Trace Thurman in Austin, Texas, raises his hand proudly and says, yes. Okay, the issue is she got... Oh, nom- I'm not debating it. I'm simply no, saying... No, 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 like- I know. <laughs> I know. I'm just I'm one of those people. No, because... She, so, she's amazing in the second season of Fargo. She's yeah, fucking yeah. fantastic. She's um, great. She basically plays a more serious Amber Atkins, but kind of crazy but like homicidal yeah <laughs> and no she got she got nominated for golden globe but lost to lady gaga from oh, american right, horror story for her hotel i remember being very pissed off when that oh happened. i was livid about that because no because the golden globes are a joke anyway because it's the hollywood oh, yeah. Horror press association and they were 74 people voting in case you've forgotten <sighs> like it's not a legitimate award show no no no. golden globes are a joke and they they're star fuckers so of course yes. they give it to lady gaga because hey she's hot right now yeah. kirsten dunst whatever not hot and then she did get nominated for an emmy but she was up against not only I I I, oh, I could be wrong, but I think it was the same year Jessica Biel was nominated for the Center, and the same year that Nicole Kidman was nominated for Big Little Lies. Mm-hmm. So Nicole Kidman won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I get, but my God, Kirsten Dunst, she's never done a movie where I'm like, like wh- wh- where people like where I'm like, I understand why people think she wouldn't be able to act because I feel like minus her wave of teen comedies like Bring It On, Get Over It, uh, something else. She did Dick. She did. Oh, Dick but Dick, she's really good in Dick. Yeah. No, she's always really good, but she appears in properties that people don't take seriously because, yeah. of course, people devalue anything that is feminine or anything that is teen oriented. More on that. Please listen to my other podcast. <laughs> well, and if you can handle depression and the least Lars von Trier of Lars von Trier, you should all watch Melancholia because she is really, really good in it. I've never seen it. 
It's Ooh. on my to watch list forever. It's a hard watch because it's very slow. It's basically a study of depression about what people do when they learn that the world is going to end. Right. And that they all handle it in different ways. But Kirsten yeah, Dunst... and she, probably badly. <laughs> yeah, and Kirsten Dunst goes into a depression. And it's just about her being depressed for two hours. Have I ever told you my favorite Lars von Trier experience? No. So I haven't actually seen many of his films. I haven't either. But in university, there was a repertory theater near the university campus that I went to. And you could pay like a couple bucks for a double feature of older movies. So I went to go see, get this, Dancer in the Dark, the oh. movie where yeah, she loses her eyesight and gets framed for murder. <laughs> and the other film on that double bill was Requiem for a Dream. Oh my god, did you want to kill yourself? <laughs> I did. I had to go and buy myself an entire pizza afterwards because I was uh, like, I just need to eat my feelings right now. I'm really upset. God, that, yeah, that sounds terrible. It was terrible and has nothing to do with this movie. That's okay. I've never seen Dancer in the Dark. I, I've seen Melancholia, I've seen Antichrist, which I hate, and I've seen um, The House of the Jack Belt. That's the only bunch I've seen. I was supposed to go see the house that Jack built, and then I just ended up missing the screening. I didn't love it. Um, I've heard that uh, Dogville... Oh, wait. He did Nymphomania, right? Nymphomaniac, yes. There we go. Yeah, so I've seen both parts of that. I did I did hear that Dogtooth and Nicole Kidman is very good, but it, Lars von Trier is notable. No, Dogville. Dogville. Damn, Dogtooth is um, not uh, <laughs> the most. Dogville yeah. with Nicole Kidman, I've heard, is very good. Three hours long of, like, of just insanity. But right. He's known for abusing his female actresses, and so like Nicole Kidman will not work with him again, which is why in the sequel to Dogville, uh, I want to say it's called Manderly. Yes. She's replaced by Bryce Dallas Howard. Right. Because <laughs> Bryce Dallas Howard is always willing to step into a role. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to our podcast, Queer Stock European Art Cinema. The sexual politics, the gender politics of Lars von Trier. God, <laughs> please look for my my <laughs> new imprint. It's coming out shortly. Blech. Okay, there is a montage as Claudia kills her way over the course of the next 30 years. Mm -hmm. She eventually comes to the realization that she will never grow up, and she demands to know who is responsible for her condition. Claudia ends up blaming both of her fathers, but she eventually forgives Louis, which to me speaks to that slightly maternalistic, but actually paternalistic relationship that they have. Right, because oh, Lestat's like the mean daddy, and Louis is the sensitive mommy. Yeah, and in a way, he gets the easy cop-out, where he says, oh, well, I just bit you, bit I didn't you. actually turn you, which right. is kind of like, well, daddy, I want to go to the grocery store well, but and she buy candy. She always had the closer relationship with Louis, though, because they even have that that, that bit, which is really cute, when she sneaks out of her coffin at night and like tiptoes around the, sun, the sunlight. And sneaks into the coffin to sleep with him. Mm -hmm. And I know you've got a gay thing that we'll leave for when you talk about your gay stuff later. Okay. Uh, let's see. So she wants to leave Lestat behind. But of course, they both know that there's no way he'll ever let them go. So she takes some very drastic measures. She goes nuts. <laughs> she full on murders well, him. Th there's that really cool moment like before we cut to the murder um, when he, he basically says, you know, he's never let us go. And she goes, oh, and then she like gets up and walks away and stops at the door and turns back and goes, really? <laughs> it's just like this really menacing, evil little, like, really? <laughs> I yeah, I mean, you can imagine some other young child actress in this role not having the capacity to mine both the ferocity of Claudia, but also the childlikeness. Because you need to have an actress who can balance both of those to pull it off. And it'd be really easy to play it just like a young girl or to just be like, I'm a vampire. 
So apparently, the other girls who auditioned. So Kristen Dunst was uh, she was she was eleven, and uh, she was spotted by talent scouts and was the first girl tested for the role. But other girls that auditioned were Christina Ricci, okay, Julia Stiles, uh, Evan Rachel Wood, okay, who would go on to be a vampire in True Blood anyway. Uh, okay. Dominique Swain, and I don't know this one, but Aaron Moore. That name sounds familiar, but I can't place it. I don't know. I mean, I could maybe see Christina Ricci in this role, but I think Dunst overall is the right choice. Yeah. Oh, man. Is it bad that when you said Julia Stiles, I just went, <gasps> no. <laughs> oh, I like Julia Stiles. That poor girl. I do, too. But come on. I know. No, I know. There's a person who should be making comments about how she's not taken seriously as an actress because... <laughs> Where the chops? I show know. me the chops, Styles. I know, I know. But she was I'll in. Still the, watch she, almost everything that you show up in. But uh, <laughs> she was in Hustlers. Oh, was she? Yeah, but she's she's the she's the journalist interviewing Constance Wu. So she's like the wraparound. Oh, so she's the Malloy. Yeah, she's yeah, yes, no, yeah, she's the Christian Slater of Hustlers. <laughs> but <laughs> but they do a lot more cutbacks to her than they do to Christian Slater in this movie because honestly, like Christian Slater gets the shaft in this movie. <laughs> I mean, not the right one. <laughs> right? Bum, bum, bum. Bum. <laughs> okay. So she tricks Lestat into drinking dead blood, which is a thing that the movie invents. Yeah. But it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's cool. So then she slits his throat and she and Louis dump his body in the swamp. I will say, though, so there's not, I, I feel like there's not a ton of like effects in this movie outside of mm-hmm. their makeup. But him. This one is good. It's an animatronic of, of when his, dra- his when his blood is draining. And it looks so creepy. It is yeah. like the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, because he get he looks all like desiccated, like he's been deflated in a little bit, and it's really good. Yeah. Should I make my joke about the swamp now, or should I hold it for later? You can make a joke now, I guess, and if it sucks, we'll do it later. <laughs> Again, and we can you can decide where to keep it. So there's a like a slight gag in the movie about how Tom Cruise subsists on eating the alligator and then other various animals that he finds in the swamp like snakes yeah but i really wanted to see tom cruise fight an alligator ah <laughs> uh, that would be great i think that would have made that, that would have pushed the movie a bit over the edge into comedy <laughs> but but that's the thing though like it's anaconda hunt for the hunt for the bloodless stat or something <laughs> well no, so so this is the 62 minute mark so this is the halfway point of the movie and tom cruise has two more scenes in this film mm-hmm. which i also forget about i do too because again you think he's on the poster he's the he's the poster the vampire Lestat. like he's the main character nope he is in less he's in half of this movie basically mm-hmm. yeah it's funny because he basically gets the top build role he makes all the money he gets the juicy part and then he just gets to fuck off and leave brad pitt to whine about his you know seasonal effectiveness disorder shooting over and well i guess it was london meant to stand in for paris yeah yeah okay so speaking of europe they make some plans that they're gonna go on a big trip and try to find some other vampires but first we've got to deal with the stat he returns he's not looking super good i like the scene where he's playing the piano and the drapes are billowing across oh it's him. great good and creepy i mean I, I think this entire again from claudia's entrance to claudia's death i think all of this is great mm-hmm. yeah this is the film firing on all cylinders because we've got dynamic actors and we've got action (laughs) like things are actually happening it's not just watching brad pitt walk around and tom cruise yell at him every once in a while yeah (laughs) so we got to deal with the stat if we're going to make this trip so let's set him on fire but they don't they don't double tap 
as Zombieland would say. <laughs> uh, check out our Patreon account for that. That's www.patreon.com slash horrorqueers. They just assume he's dead. And then they hop on a boat and go to Paris. First, they also set the entire French Quarter of New Orleans on fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> I could not be bothered to take a, a moment to do any kind of research because I'm far too lazy for that. Do you know if there's a real fire that took place in the early 1800s where part of the French Quarter burned down? So this is, um, because this is Paris, September 1870. So French Quarter Fire, 1870. It might have been slightly before that, though, because it says that they traveled around Europe. But yeah, it'd be like mid-1800s. Well, there's a whole section on FrenchQuarter.com about their historic city fires. Oh, I mean, it was the time when you build your city out of wood and you don't have a fire station. Yeah, I don't think there's really anything notable. I, I've been to the French Quarter because, I mean, yeah, my, my mom's from New Orleans, so I would go visit family there. Um, it's, oh I don't. God, I don't, we get it. You've eaten jambalaya. Ugh. I've made jambalaya. It's a little too much seafood for me, to be honest. I'm, it's actually more rice than it is seafood. Oh, is it? Okay. I made a lot of it um, in college because one batch would feed me for like a week. Right. <laughs> but you've still got to put all of that good protein in there, don't you? Um, no, it's actually mostly sausage and rice um, and like peppers. I think you can put shrimp in it. I think I put shrimp in it. Oh, I think okay. you're thinking of etouffee. Etouffee is like crawfish etouffee or seafood gumbo. <gasps> gumbo, that's one thing. Yeah, yeah jam- jambalaya is like a rice dish. Oh, okay. Anyway. Well, now I know. <laughs> the more so, you know. Yeah, so they're in Paris. They're in Paris. It's 1870. They haven't found any other vampires. Super sad. And then Louis meets Armand, played by Antonio Banderas, and not looking at all like the redhead he is in the book. <laughs> Apparently he's like a young 20-something with red hair. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Named Armand? Which does not work for me. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's very bizarre. Um, no, yeah. I think he, I think both him and Stephen Ray as Santiago Honestly, I didn't do research on Neil Jordan like before I watched this. And then, of course, I was like, that name sounds so familiar, but I think I was thinking mm-hmm. of Neil LeBute. Oh, yeah, not the same. Flashback to our Wicker Man episode. But, yeah, then, of course, I was like, oh, The Crying Game. Wait, Stephen Ray's in The Crying Game. Wait, Stephen mm-hmm. Ray's in, like, almost every single Neil Jordan movie. <laughs> yeah, they are partners. They like to work together. Which is cool, because I feel like Stephen Ray is one of those actors that maybe wouldn't get as much work if he wasn't getting employed. Probably. <laughs> He's a good actor. He's just not particularly, like, he doesn't stand out among the pack. Well, no. To be honest, I think this is one of his most exciting roles for it's, that very so reason. Fun. Because he, he gets to do something. Normally, you know, if you've seen The Crying Game, he's kind of a sad sack in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because you're talking about Irish terrorists. Well, okay, <laughs> but hold on. So, so uh, Neil Jordan has also done a movie called In Dreams with um, Annette Bening, which I've never seen. But Stephen Oh my Ray- god, it's so terrible, and I love it, and I kind of want to make you do it, just so that we can do some kind of drinking game around when you see apples. Okay, so Stephen Ray's in that too. He's in Fear.com, which we mentioned last a <gasps> uh, couple weeks oh, ago. Oh, wow. This is just not Yeah. Good. Wait, wait, wait. There's more. He's in Breakfast on Pluto. He's in The Reaping, the Hillary Swank Dark <gasps> Castle movie. <laughs> Oh, right. Uh, he's in Underworld Awakening, the fourth one, and he's in Greta. Yes. Like, <laughs> his role in Greta is super boring, too. Yeah, it is. Gosh. He's in a lot of things, but honestly, I could not tell you mm. which character he is in any of these movies. Yeah. You know why? I think it's just his his overall face and look <laughs> is just every man. Like, he doesn't stand out in that way. He reminds me of Steve Coogan, like the guy in Hamlet 2. Yes, 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 yes. 
Anyway, okay, but yeah, he's good, and so is Antonio Banderas. <laughs> so what we're saying is, the face is British. <laughs> yeah. Please note, I didn't make a comment about the teeth specifically. I know, that, that, that yeah. Okay, so Louis meets Armand, and he is invited, along with Claudia, to go to something called the Théâtre des Vampires, which is basically another Grand Canal show. I am so happy you said that, because I, I was reading on the Wikipedia last night, and I was like, Théâtre Grand Vampire. I mean, you have criticized my pronunciation you get the Pretty French. much consistently, no. but I can do this French. You get the French. I get literally everything else. Um, By the True. way, I'm a pretty good typist, but every time I was typing vampire in my notes, I was typing campire. I'm sorry, why? Oh, because we've written out camp well, so well, often over the last eight well, weeks. And the C is right next to the V on the keyboard, so I, like, my uh, finger kept okay. sitting. But then I was like, oh, man, I wish this was a campy movie that we could have fit into our camp marathon, because that would have been our subtitle, Interview with the Campire. Jesus God. I mean, it still could. <laughs> the Campire really Chronicles. <laughs> the Campire Lestat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Wait, wait, so the Teatre Campire. Ah, yes. The Teatre de Campire. <laughs> okay. Which now makes it sound Italian. So okay. This theater stuff is really cool, though. There's a really cool overhead shot when they all swarm on the lady that I thought was yes. awesome. Yes. Even though I wish that it didn't look like they were wearing garbage bag cloaks. Yes. I think it was supposed to be velvet, but yes. I think so as well. <laughs> <laughs> we spent so much money on this stage and the catacombs and Antonio Banderas's extensions. We just couldn't splurge on the velvet. We had to go with garbage bags. And it's like, it, you get what they're doing, but then Brad Pitt has to spell it out in case you don't get it where it's like vampires pretending to be humans pretending to be vampires and then Kirsten Dunst but is then like, you get her great line ha, how avant-garde <laughs> <laughs> like she's smarter than you dude I, accept it. <laughs> I, I, I admit though so I, I've studied avant-garde but every time I hear it used I'm like fuck how do you look up what that means again it's just you know new wave French experimental filmmaking yeah, art, art shit yeah basically <laughs> it's trendy contemporary bullshit that people get large grants for yes exactly okay so this show that we've been talking about is narrated by santiago the stephen ray character uh and as you alluded to it it more or less is just a bunch of different vignettes played for comedy and then it ends with a full-fledged murder on stage <laughs> that people have paid to see and then presumably would be expected to give a recommendation to friends <laughs> so that the theater stays open. But that's your... Okay, so you said it better than... I, I, I say Grand Guignol. I say Guignol. Guignol. Hey, I, I've been... Because I, I, I learned about it, quote unquote, when I was watching Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. But... Sidebar, go watch Penny Dreadful. Go watch Penny Dreadful. It's so fucking good. Even if the finale leaves a lot to be desired. But, yes. Yeah, and if that was their original ending, I call bullshit. Oh, bullshit. Total bullshit. Total bullshit. Anyway, they, anyway, they were canceled, yeah. rushed it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. But yeah, no, no, no. But, like, but that's the appeal, though. Because when everyone's leaving the theater, they all look very upset and disturbed. But, yeah. like, th that was the appeal of that style of theater. But I feel like... It the campy part of it where you're watching, you know, the guy who goes down the well and then comes back up as the angel and then falls back down. That's what people want. They gotcha. want the black humor. They don't want the, Hey, did we actually just see that lady get killed by about 20 um, people? The lady with full bush on display. Like I, again, I know it's not like 
bad but not uncommon to see bush in a mainstream film but it just mm-hmm. it still kind of shocks me every time your 60 million dollar <laughs> contemporary like wide mass appeal film starring brad pitt and tom cruise full lady bush and no man nudity at all no male oh nudity. no do we even see chest in this movie I think, well, because Tom Cruise, I think when he's sucking on that woman's titty earlier in the movie and she's like freaking out and he puts her in the coffin. I do like that scene, by the way. I glossed over it, but no, I, I know. really like it. It's, it's, it's really genuinely good. Genuinely upsetting. And when she, because when she's freaking out, yeah, it's, yeah. it's real good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe his shirt's kind of like half on, half off in it, or he has like a really low V neck or something, but like with ruffles. Don't give me a billowy man <laughs> shirt. I could watch Seinfeld if I want that kind of thing. Right. Come on. Absolutely. Oh, you wouldn't get that reference, would you? Nope. I disagree with you, because I was like, I don't know. It's the puffy shirt. It's a famous episode. Okay. Jerry wears a an old-fashioned British kind of writing shirt that's just very puffy. And he thinks it's, like, fashionable? Yes, and everyone okay. has to tell him it's not. See, so my thing for that is the episode of Friends when Rachel gives Joey a man bag, and everyone makes fun of it, makes fun of him for it because he calls it a purse, but he likes it and it's fashionable. Mm-hmm. Which is probably more relatable to a lot of people. I remember when I had a satchel and I insisted on calling it a satchel and everyone else just said it was my man purse because people are homophobic and they like to disguise it in comedy. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Good times. So my notes here say this show would get a bad score on Letterboxd. (laughs) There's no plot. There's no plot. It features real death. Yep. After chatting with Armand, Santiago reads Louis's thoughts, and he figures out pretty quickly that these Americans have killed Lestat, which is a cardinal sin. Not supposed to kill your own kind. So here's the thing. Apparently, in the book, Lestat does return, and there's like a trial of sorts, where mm. he, him and Louis do get to talk before Claudia's death. And Lestat basically says, uh, yeah, this bitch tried to kill me. Do you think they wear puffier hair pieces like they do on those British crime procedurals when oh, they go to God. court? Oh, uh, God. That's also, they still do that today. I just watched that fucking uh, Kira Knightley movie that came out about the 9-11 stuff. And when she's oh, in court, yeah. they're all still wearing those goddamn white wigs. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of amazing. It's insane. I mean, like, no, no shade, mind you. It just looks really goofy. It does. Yes. But it also reminds me of Sleepy Hollow, which kind of fills me with joy. Yeah, maybe that's why I think it's goofy. Okay, so yeah, so biggest crime, kill one of your kind. Yeah, so now they're in trouble, but Claudia correctly assumes that she's the one who's in danger. And Louis's like, no, it's fine. And she's like, "Uh, take your fucking glasses off because you're going to be okay because Armand wants to pork you and keep you around forever and I'm fucked. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So she goes to a random doll shop and (laughs) picks up the first lady she sees and asks Louis to make her her own companion so that they can fuck off into the sunset together. And he can stay with Armand and have lots of anal sex with him. Exactly. Yeah. Or at least the closest thing we come to a man-on-man kiss in this movie. Yes. But it doesn't happen. 
And uh, neither does Claudia's escape because she and this bitch Madeline, I mean, Madeline gets turned and then they just immediately get scooped up. So this scene when the woman like because her her and Louie are talking and they basically agree to part ways. And then, boom, this woman, who, by the way, is Helen McCrory, a.k.a. Um, Draco Malfoy's mother from the Harry Potter movies. OK, sorry. Yeah, she was the only one that I didn't give a credit to. So I apologize to her. I, I know she's a very small part. But all right, so I mentioned yesterday, I love the score for this movie and this particular moment as soon as like the curtains open she goes it's time for justice little one mm. really insane music I have like a, if this doesn't sound good you can cut it out but this is it I just really like how intense that violin music is <laughs> And it's zero to, like, 60. <laughs> the, the only other time we get that music before this is when Tom Cruise is dancing with the, the uh, her mother's corpse. Mm. So it's the moments when Claudia is the most in danger. Basically, yeah. And I love this piece of music. It's called um, Abduction and Absolution. Uh, if you want to look at it up, it's on YouTube. Oh, because this movie sure does love its Catholic guilt. Yeah, but yeah, no, I... I I really like the score. But the guy that did the score, by the way, is uh, Philippe Rousselot. I could be butchering that. Music for Dangerous Liaisons, Mary Riley, Remember the Titans, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the remake. Uh, okay. The Brave One with Jodie Foster, which Neil Jordan also directed. Yep. And both Fantastic Beast films. Okay. I can definitely hear that Fantastic Beast now that you're mentioning it. Well, there you go. He also won an Oscar for this, did he not? He was nominated for an Oscar. This film was nominated for two Oscars, I think. I uh, but it didn't win. Um, it lost okay. both of them. But I he he was either nominated for for an Oscar for a Golden Globe for this. It was one of the two. I think it was an Oscar. Yeah, but you're right. They didn't win either one of them. Yeah. Okay. Uh. So yeah. So bombastic music. They're carried away, and Louis gets locked in a coffin that is then put behind a brick wall. So that makes the last three movies we've talked about where characters end up behind bricked-in walls. Yep. <laughs> Not sure how we're ending up with these weird themes. He gets <laughs> Cask of Amontillado'd again. If you didn't listen to Phantom of the Paradise, if you didn't listen to House on Hunt Hill, go read Cask of Amontillado. Hmm. Or listen to The Phantom of the Paradise because that episode was really good and we're worried that it's not going to do as well as we hope. So <laughs> That's <laughs> not incorrect. <laughs> yeah, so that's Louis. And then Claudia and Madeline get put... I'm not sure where this actually is, but it's basically at the bottom of what looks like either a factory... A, a silo. factory spire or some kind of silo. It's described as a well. Okay. Because they're underground in the they're catacombs. Right. Okay, uh, so basically the whole setup is that eventually the sun will creep down and it will turn them into crispy critters, which is indeed exactly what happens. Which I was like, can they not just like hide under those big ass dresses? That's literally what Brian said. <laughs> he was like, you've got 12 feet of fabric there. Why don't you just throw that over your heads? <laughs> but, but the thing is that when Louis finds them, their dresses have also turned to ash. Yeah, I wonder if it's like anything that's connected to your vampire property will also be treated the same as your vampire. I think you're putting more thought to this than they did. But um, apparently sure. um, the, the special effects were done by um, Stan Winston. Right. And for this look of their, their ashes, he drew inspiration from the corpses from um, the Hiroshima bombing. Yep, 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 yep. Which I think is another reason why this particular set piece ends up becoming so iconic and why it really registers for people, because that horror looks fucking real. 
it's her face frozen in a scream. It's such an unsettling image. It's so upsetting. And again, even though she's a crazy little bitch, you like this girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she may be at this point, what, 100 years old, but she still looks like a fucking 12 year old. Right. Which, by the way, in the book, she's five. I thought she was six. Five or six. Whatever. She's, she's not 12. <laughs> yeah. Which, again, they changed her age not only because they were worried about trying to find an actress who could imbue all of these different characteristics, but also because they were worried about the optics of having men with such a young girl. Yeah. It's so still weird, your, but... <laughs> there's your queer pedophilia angle coming into play in 1994. Yep. Yay! Oh, I didn't even gay think shit. about that. I didn't even think about like, linking like them being gay to also being pedophiles. Oh, damn it! Yeah, because back in the 90s, that's what gay men were. They were yep. sexual predators for children. Oh, God. Okay, we're in the home stretch here, because honestly, th- there's like 25 minutes of movie left, but I only have two bullet points in my notes for what happens. <laughs> because who could fucking care? It doesn't it's matter! It's all about Louis! <laughs> God, this is the part where I literally went, oh, this movie is two hours. Yeah, no. And why? Apparently they ended, it was 20 minutes longer. They had um, a test screening that the the producer felt there was too much blood and violence. So they held test. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. In your horror movie? Yeah. And so they, they held test screenings over the objection of Neil Jordan, who wanted to wait until like he had a final cut. But the producer Geffen wanted to show a longer version in order to get a feel for what the audience wanted. Eventually, about 20 minutes worth of footage was either cut or rearranged before the theatrical version was ready. See, I love it when you hear these kinds of stories. I I just wrote a piece about the missing footage from Event Horizon, which had a very similar thing where they basically rushed that film into test screening. And then, shockingly enough, the test screening didn't go well, and the audience was like, not in favor of that film draft and they ended up then demanding cuts be made as a result and you're like well yeah the director has literally not gotten the print to where they want it to be and you're forcing them to show it and then people are saying oh it doesn't look polished it's not ready (laughs) it's a self-fulfilling fucking prophecy (laughs) it's oh god it's just yeah and we'll never just leave the filmmakers alone (laughs) leave them alone and then when they have a final cut then you can show it to audiences and see what's going on yes exactly (laughs) and then if it sucks then you demand guts yeah (laughs) or you don't do test screenings because test screening audiences are idiots yeah they're bad but if if you've been to test audience i apologize so we have a massacre So we've got this massacre, and Louis gets really pissy about it. His best scene, honestly. His most interesting moment in the film. Uh, Yeah, because they let Brad Pitt act and do stuff. Running around with a fucking, I literally, in all caps, a fucking scythe. (laughs) Yes, it's I completely forgot about this. I remember him lighting things on fire, but I don't remember the scythe. Uh, So yeah, this is really loud and big and exciting. We've got vampires bursting out of coffins we've got him chopping them down mid-air them exploding Mm -hmm. and then of course we've got the sweet revenge that he takes on santiago whom he slices right in half it's basically stan winston getting to do one gore effects in this movie yeah he's like actually i killed all of them in really dramatic ways and then they cut it down to this one yeah exactly uh oh oh I realize I, I didn't mention this, and it may not be the right time, but yeah, so apparently Oprah Winfrey famously walked out of an advanced screening of this movie only 10 minutes in because of the gore and dark themes. She even considered canceling an interview with Tom Cruise promoting the film, stating that, I believe there are forces of light and darkness in the world, and I don't want to be a contributor to the force of darkness. 
So, Oprah. I want to make a comment about how she was maybe fasting and her blood sugar level was low or something, <laughs> but not to fat shame or anything. It's more just Oprah, sweetie. I'm thinking back to the opening of this film. Well, yeah, the opening really? 10 minutes, which doesn't have that much. Like, he, it's the scene when he bites Louis, really. Exactly. Maybe she was secretly turned on by it and she just couldn't accept it for herself. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So at this point, the carnage is done. And basically, we're just down to Armand and Louis. And Armand is like, so you DDF anymore? You want to still stay in this carriage? I've got my little fuck boy up front and I can fuck you in the back here. Uncomfortable. Why does he have that child? Ew. It's so weird. And Louis is like, no, thanks. I'm good. I'm going to leave Paris. I'm going to wander the globe for ages. I'm going to take in a superhero film here and there. Which tells us that Louis is a better person than Martin Scorsese. Hmm? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Topical. This is going to age well. And eventually he returns to New Orleans in the 1980s. There he meets agoraphobic, still burned, question mark, Lestat. Apparently Lestat has managed to stay inside this entire time and never once encounter a human being that he could That's, feed on to I regenerate. I was so confused by this. I was like, what? Was he? But okay, but here's my reading. He was so depressed over losing the love of his life, Louis, mm-hmm. that he couldn't bear to go out and feed because it wasn't the same. Or he's channeling the spirit of Louis by saying, I'm only going to eat rats. Yeah, because it's the only thing that connects it to him. And that's the only way he can get a sexual connection with him or a physical, Mm -hmm. mental, emotional connection with him. Yeah, it's what we here call rat boner. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Oh, come on. You've never had rat, have you? Had rat? (laughs) Hey, you're the one who's always talking about how you like to eat these weird experimental meats. Wait, is that a thing people eat is rat? Uh, okay, so Lestat also wants Louis to stay with him. This guy must have, like, a 12-inch dick. Giant cock, right? Like, like he has a magic <laughs> penis. <laughs> Everybody's like, I love your hair and also your penis. Please stay with me. And he's like, hmm, I'm good. In reality, it's just, it's Brad Pitt. It's Brad Pitt. And everybody wants him, and he wants none of them, because mm-hmm. he's sad. So now we're back to the present day. And Louis has completed his interview. Malloy completely misinterprets everything that he's talked about for the last two hours and says, hey, I'll be your companion. I think we'd be a great team. Again, 12-inch dick. Yep. Prompting Louis to toss him around a bit like a ragdoll, leaving a huff because he's so, very upset. This basically reminded me, it's like if you're like on like a grinder date and like, you know, you want to hook up with the guy and then they're like, mm, I'm okay, bye. <laughs> I'm just not into this right now. I've got to get up really early. And also your picture doesn't match what yeah. I'm seeing in real life. Or, you know, you go down on a guy and then, you know, afterwards they were like, okay, bye. I'm done. And don't return the favor. Really unfortunate. Wow. That is poor etiquette. I'm not saying it's happened to me before, but I'm not saying it hasn't not happened to me before. <laughs> so what you're saying is we should read between the interview lines. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Okay, so at this point, the movie turns Malloy into the main character, and we follow him for a hot second. He drives across the Golden Gate Bridge, at which point he is attacked by Lestat, who has magically appeared in his car because he knew that Louis was going to talk to this guy. Well, that's clearly your sequel set up, because the book just ends with him going off seeking Lestat, because then he's like, well, Lestat will turn me into a vampire. Yeah. 
oh, okay. This is giving me some uncomfortable feelings about Queen of the Damned because that whole movie is just literally a bunch of people being like, I should have better things to do, but what I really want to be is a vampire. Well, okay. So, well, let's just wrap this up. So Glistat bites him and then he offers to make him the same deal that he made Louis all those many years ago, suggesting that Malloy will become his next companion. The end. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So before we get to the gay shit, <laughs> which I, it, in my notes, it does say gay shit. Right. So with the sequel. It's the alternative title of our podcast that we considered back Gay in the day. shit. Yes. Gay shit. So I've never seen Queen of the Damned, but it came out almost a decade after this movie came out. But it's important yes. to know, though, Queen of the Damned is the third book in this series. The second yes. book is the Vampire Lestat, which, from what I understand, goes into Lestat's backstory. Mm-hmm. And basically the studio said, well, this is too episodic. We can't do that so they took elements of the vampire lestat and queen of the dance and put them into one movie yes. and rice was like you can't fucking do that because there's a lot of stuff that pays off in queen of the dam that you have to have the information from vampire lestat to like make sense yeah and then they were like well you can't write this <laughs> <laughs> fine we bitch love you we love your material we think you are a fantastic fag hag but also please leave our offices it's, yeah, it's, it really sucks. Um, and yeah, the movie was critically panned. She hated it. It was Ilea's last screen appearance. It came out like eight months after she died, which really sucks. Yeah. The fourth book, Ron Howard's studio, or film production company, got the film rights, but then it didn't happen. As of 2014, the rights have transferred to Universal They've come Pictures. back to Anne Rice, haven't they? Well... Okay, so it says, August 2014, Universal Pictures got the rights to the entire Vampire Chronicles. A new film adaptation... Okay, so Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orzi have been named as producers of The Tale of the Body Thief, which is... So they're still trying to make this fourth book a movie, basically. (laughs) They're not trying to remake this. They're trying to just continue the franchise. Keep reading, keep reading. A new film adaptation of the book has been written by Josh Boone and was announced in May 2016. No, that's not happening. Keep reading, keep reading. Okay. In November 2016, all plans for the theatrical reboot were scrapped as Rice announced that she had regained the rights to her novels and intends to create a television series starting with the Vampire Lestat. Okay. Whoop, there it is. There you go. So this is actually really interesting because we're living in this time right now where all of these rights from 80s properties are reverting back to their authors. Right. And Anne Rice is actually one of the first people to capitalize on this. So she famously has not been happy with the way that her work has been adapted. And now she's fucking leading the charge and making a TV series out of these properties. Yeah. Which I think is kind of fascinating. As long as they put it on either a, a premium cable network like HBO or something, or like something like FX. Like, I just... Because that's the big thing, right? Is that she announced this, and they're apparently moving forward with it because they've got financiers, but they don't have a home for it. So nobody knows where this is actually going to be exhibited yet. Yeah. Which is crazy. Let's make a TV show. We don't know how you're going to watch it. Yeah. But yeah, let's sink millions of dollars into it. Okay. It just, yeah, it's it's really unfortunate, and I I, I hope it comes, because, I mean, again, if, if Vampire Lestat is as episodic as the studio said it was, like, cool, make that for a good, it's basically, I guess, a prequel? Like, kind of? Yeah, it's his, it's his origin story, so it's how he became a vampire, how he became the one that he is, his relationship to the Queen of the Damned, which is where the movie really fucking stumbles, but the stuff with him is interesting because it's even further into the historical past, yeah. and it talks about his creator Marius, it talks about his relationship with Armand, which we're meant to infer is sexual. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're all meant to be sexual. Well, because all vampires are either bi or gay. 
Well, don't let the straights hear you say that, because they might be like, yeah, y'all are reaching too far. We're just queering the whole thing up. <laughs> well, in the book, it's very explicitly. Gay. Yeah, that, that's that's a good transition. Before, Really quickly, this movie did win an award. It won the Razzie Award for Worst Screen Couple for Tom Pitt, Tom Pitt, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Oh, Tom Pitt. They tied with Sylvester Stallone and Sharon Stone for The Specialist that year. Oof. Okay. So, <laughs> pre- yeah. please please also read our article on Basic Instinct 2, in which we'll talk more about Sharon Stone and her illustrious career. And her quote-unquote acting. Uh, wow. in, in, in that particular movie. She's a good actress, right. just not in that movie. Fair, yes. So, yeah, no. yeah. So, the book... Apparently, it was still subtext, the homophobia, uh, the homophobia, um, the, hom- the homoeroticism was still subtext, even though in the book, Lestat does expect Louis to sleep with him. So I don't know where you get subtext from that. That's just plain text. Particularly when it's like, oh, I only have one coffin. Please climb into it with me. Yes. Yes. Uh, so basically, yeah, Rice perceived Hollywood to be homophobic, which is not incorrect. <laughs> it's like oh girl you have you've got eyes yeah um so at one point she rewrote the part of louis changing louis from male to female in order to specifically heterosexualize the character's relationship with lestat i love this story this who were they going to cast trace i, I had no idea about this I, I had never heard this before and i am flabbergasted so yeah at the time rice felt that it was the only way to get the film made so singer actress share was Cher! considered 1994 share was considered for the part and here's the crazy thing all right so this is like what four or five years before believe comes out makes her like a monster i mean she's already a big hit but like she hadn't had, had like a number one single in like i think ever i think her first and only number one single was believe um anyway so she wrote a song titled lovers forever with Shirley Eichard for the film soundtrack, which was rejected as Pitt was ultimately cast for the role. Because they're like, well, shares are going to be in it. We don't need a share song. Can you also imagine this movie with a share song as, like, the title soundtrack? Mm, I'd throw it over the closing credits. Yeah. But anyway, I was like, Lovers Forever, that sounds really familiar. Because in Cher's 2013 album, Close to the Truth, yes, they released that song, but like a dance pop version of it. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> now... Is it a banger? It's not one of my favorite songs on that, on that, that oh. album. So that <laughs> album is, it's really good, but it's basically half like bangers and half more slow ballads. And Lovers Forever is kind of like, it's more of a club dance number, but it leans into the ballad a little bit too much. Like the best songs in the album are more, the ones that are just like pure bangers. But again, you know me, I don't okay. like my ballads. Right. So half the album is bangers and the other half is more mash. That's what you're saying. Yeah, but, but honestly, <laughs> Lit Note, it's a really good album, y'all. Listen to it. It's uh, Had it not been for her mom, uh, her ABBA cover album that came out uh, last year, then that would have been her last album. You think so? I oh, mean, like, okay, sorry. I mean, I, I mean as of now, you know, yeah, like, I miss sort of understood and thought, you, like, oh, she, that was going to be the final album. She weren't going to produce no more. Well, no, because that, that year with the Closer to the Truth tour, uh, that was her quote unquote farewell tour, her like third one. And oh, I went girl. to, I, yeah. I went to go see it. I can't with the number of farewell tour to she's. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, I'm not dead yet. I guess I might as well do it. How can I miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So this movie is super gay. Super gay. What can we say besides, you know, the timeline? Like, it's just, being in 1994, they're not going to release this mainstream $60 million movie with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise going at it, even though they kind of do in their scene, in their first scene together. 
I mean, this movie is just filled with fuck eyes all the time. They're constantly like touching each other. They're having couples quarrels. I even wrote down like one of the first lines of dialogue where he says, I've drained you. And then there's like an excruciating pause where you're like, semen. Yeah. To the point of death. And then a moment later, he asks Louis, will you come or not? (gasps) Come on. I didn't catch that. I mean, obviously, yes. This is us being like thirsty homos. No, 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 no. no, no, Being like, boys kiss. Yay. (laughs) Well, also, though, because we all know Tom Cruise is gay in real life. So I think he, I think maybe. Oh, man, we just lost another Patreon subscriber. (laughs) Tom, we love you. We love your patronage. Please continue to support us at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers. That South Park episode, whenever it's the the trapped in the closet, it was like right before Mission Impossible 3 and Tom Cruise like threatened to sue Paramount because Paramount was releasing Mission Impossible and they also do South Park. Right. But there's that part where, like, yeah, he's in the, he's literally in uh, Kyle's closet. closet. Yeah. But Nicole, they bring Nicole Kidman in and it's just, Tom. Tom, it's Nicole. You've got to come out of the closet, Tom. That's a British accent, and she's Australian, but you get what I'm saying. You're giving it your best, yeah. It's so funny. But yeah, so I think maybe, maybe him doing things like this allow him to stay closeted, because he gets it out in his art. I don't know, man. I feel like this probably just gave credit to the idea and the rumor mill. Oh. I mean, it's very possible that he did this as like, okay, this is an outlet for me. I get to make eyes at Brad Pitt for a bunch of time, and then I can go back to pretending to like women. But I think at the end of the day, you don't make gay shit if you don't if, yeah, want to people be to think you're gay. gay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's just like how Brad Pitt disclosed his Creole status in this movie, you know, and that's something that he probably feels very passionate about as well. Wait, what? Like, there's a, a part where Brad Pitt talks about how he is a Creole. Oh, oh yeah. So I, I was thinking Tom Cruise when you said that, and I was like, what are you I talking probably about? said Tom Cruise. And no, I don't friends, know. So. <laughs> but it, I wonder, because Anne Rice is going to make her TV show, The Vampire Lost that's fine. But mm-hmm. there's going to be men kissing in that. I yeah, ha- they have to make it gay, right? Like, they have to be more yes. homoerotic with it. Because again, yes. the, 25 years later, it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, even True, because True Blood, while there was definitely, I mean, there wasn't a ton of gay sex in that movie, in that movie, in that show, but there was still gay sex in it. Mm -hmm. And that was 2007. Yeah. At least give us the shirtless men. I mean, that, that, leaving that out in this movie, like, I get, I get removing the gay stuff. I don't understand not wanting to show skin on either of these two actors. Like, did they think that it was going to be a primarily male audience? Because... Women are going to go see these. That's why you cast Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt to get women in the 90s. Yeah. I mean, I've got to think that women were the target audience for this because, I mean, I know they said that they cut the gore and the horror out of it, but mm-hmm. this is really more like this is on par with Brad Pitt's other sort of films of the 90s, not where he's playing a psycho killer, but his more you know introspective i'm looking for myself kind of micho blackie shit or like seven years in tibet so you mentioned in the beginning that you didn't love tom cruise's performance in this movie what why okay so here is my issue and we've had this conversation now several weeks in a row i find he plays tom cruise he plays tom cruise a lot (laughs) sometimes he's fine it's the part where he yells um his yell is 
honestly, it sounds hysterical. It takes me out of the performance so much, and he does a lot of yelling in this movie. He does, but see, I... I don't see him playing Tom Cruise in this movie. I, I I see him in this character and having a total fucking blast with it. Like I I think Lestat's playfulness and his like maniacalness and his psychosis is quite fascinating. And it's almost like a mirror of Tom Cruise himself. Like like <laughs> who people think Tom Cruise is is this like, you know, um narcissistic asshole like right. And he's just so flamboyant and just loose in this movie. I mean, is it a precursor to his couch dance on Oprah's couch? Sure. Maybe. maybe. But like, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't really, I, I disagree with you. I respectfully disagree with you. That's fine. I mean, for me, yeah, it's really the parts where he's yelling. Cause if you, I'm not sure if there's a supercut available, but if you yeah. see the way that this, he this is the Nicholas Cage we're talking about. Right. <laughs> Although I wouldn't be surprised because people are assholes on the internet. They like to do this kind of stuff. Tom Cruise yelling. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he's bad. I think Brad Pitt is unabashedly bad in this role. Again, I don't know if it's his fault. I think it's partially him. It's partially the actual script. But I was never fully engaged, even when Tom Cruise was having fun with it. It's really not until the Claudia stuff begins. And then... The film gets good for me. I find that fascinating. Because, yeah, I mean, honestly, had Tom Cruise not been the foil for Brad Pitt in the first 30 minutes, I think it would have been, like, a real drag. Oh, no, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I just, I can't help but wonder if maybe somebody else in that role would have brought a different kind of sensuality to it. Like, there's no intimacy. There's no danger to the threat in Lestat. Even when Claudia says, oh, wait, we, we can't leave him. I never fully bought it because it always just kind of seemed casual. Like, to be honest, I wanted more sex from my vampire film. I get that. When you think about the way that vampire sexuality, the sensuality, the intimacy is presented in something like The Hunger. And I know it's a very different kind of movie. Which came out 11 years before this. Okay, but Daughters of Darkness. Like maybe it's a, maybe it's a difference between no, 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 male no. vampires and female vampires. Oh yes, I would agree with that. But no, I, I mean, eleven years like like it's astounding. You know, you have this very because I I mean, The Hunger was a Tony Scott film. I I don't know if it was an indie film or if it like went. I mean, it flopped. It didn't make a lot of money, even with David Bowie in the cast, which is astounding. Right, but I mean, I'm trying to th- yeah. Other than something like David Dakota's The Brotherhood, like what's <laughs> like, which is obviously not a mainstream film. Is there a mainstream vampire film that has been overtly like male queer? I guess to take it back to True Blood, I would probably talk about the Alexander Skarsgård character. Yeah, I can see that because he's very much a pan. He's pansexual, even though we really only see him fucking women. He talks yeah. about fucking men. Yeah, both that. TV show and this film take place in a kind of southern gothic atmosphere, right? And the the idea mm-hmm. is meant to connote, oh, there's a long history of people here. And there's, you know, something about the edge of the swamp. It's hot, it's humid, it's a bit frontier-like in that way, which is all stuff that lends itself well to people getting away with murder. But in True Blood, and again, probably unfair because it's so modern, but... Yeah. There's a sexiness to it, right? But think about it, though. True Blood premiered 13 years after this came out, which sounds 
doesn't sound that long, you know, but really, yeah, yeah, between 94 and 2007, it is. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. There's just, there's something about the way this film is so dour. It really focuses on how eternal life is a big fucking drag, which we've seen in other vampire films. You know, I was just listening to a podcast today about only lovers left alive Ooh, which yeah. is a better film, yeah, but it's also not about it's not about luring people over to the dark side in the way that Interview with the Vampire is. Well, that that movie's about they have eternal life and they just live and enjoy it. I think part of what I struggle with with Interview with the Vampire is that there's something so appealing about this vampire life. Like all these people keep wanting to become vampires. It's a way to escape death, but the film is only interested in talking about how the, the one sad <laughs> Louis is. And yeah. he drags everything down, even to the point where exciting performances like mileage may vary Tom Cruise, but definitely Kirsten Dunst to a slightly lesser extent, Antonio Banderas who gets to smolder. Yeah, and Stephen Ray, who gets to play kooky Charlie Chaplin vampire. Yeah, all I can think of is, wouldn't this film be so much more exciting <laughs> if, if it just actually wanted focus. to talk about being a vampire? Yeah. But also, why are they all such fucking assholes that they can't do something good with their eternal lives? <laughs> like, all they do is kill people. They don't need money. Well, like, they have money, because they put on all those fancy plays. <laughs> but all they need to do is drink blood. They don't need to do anything else. They don't need to bathe. They don't need to have beauty regimens. All all they have to do is drink blood, fuck, and act in plays. Not even fucking. (laughs) I know. Not even fucking. (laughs) All they're doing is moping and occasionally drinking somebody's blood and mostly to kill them. No, you're right. You are not incorrect. And I think, again, had this movie been made today, we'd be seeing a very different version of it. But this is 1994, and we're not, we can't expect that from this movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you got anything else you want to talk about? No, I still really, I still, it's a four out of five. Kirsten Dunn's like, it's no wonder she became a star. I, I really enjoy this. I'm interested to see what listeners think of this movie today. If you're mm-hmm. seeing it for the first time, or if you saw it back then and you're seeing it again today, did it hold up on a rewatch for you? Or are you more on Joe's side, leaning towards that three stars? Yeah, for sure. Do you have a game, or are we going to skip it this time? I've got a game. We'll make it quick. Okay. So, we talked briefly about the special dark powers that come with being a vampire. So, Trace, I would like to know, what would your vampire power be? Oh, fuck. Mm. Oh, I want to shapeshift. That might be a boring answer, but I feel like that would be the... Ooh, or maybe invisibility. Hmm, that's a good one. Well, because I think when you bring in invisibility, you bring in some real pervy voyeuristic things to it. Uh, yeah. I mean, that doesn't say a lot about me, I guess, that I say I might want to be invisible. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't I, I like the idea. I've always been fascinated by the vampire's ability to shapeshift into animals. But like, not one animal, though. I want to be able to shapeshift into any animal or mm. any person. Okay. So, so you're you're going broad with this. You want, like, a lot of power. <laughs> yeah, I just watched three Wishmaster movies, and I've learned that you have to be kind of specific with what you want. And yeah. for me, mm-hmm. narrowing down me, my, my shape-shifting abilities to one thing is just not smart. So, Okay, interesting. What's yours? So I like the idea of what Tom Cruise can do, but I want to make it more explicit. So I like the ability to compel people... But I would want to be able to make them forget it afterwards. 
Oh, I can. Okay. So think about it. Like you could talk yourself into a job that you really wanted, or if you didn't have enough, you know, change to like, yeah, you catch the bus. Or if you wanted a free movie, you could be, you know, like just magically get your way. So you want Jedi powers. Sure. (laughs) And I want a lightsaber. (laughs) What what is that line? It's like, you don't need to see our identification. (laughs) Okay, fine. Jedi powers for you. Shape-shifting powers for me. Listeners, let us know what your dark power would be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So dark. Well, I think that'll wrap up our discussion of Interview the Vampire. Um, Before we announce what we're covering next week, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Trace Thurman. I am at Beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers, or email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com, or check out our Facebook group, which is just called HorrorQueers Group, and you can go join it. It's real fun. <laughs> you can join it, God. You can join it, motherfuckers! Um, <laughs> you can talk about Tom Pitt all you want in there. Yes, Tom Pitt. Oh my god, Pitt Tom. Tom Pitt, no, Tom Pitt's better. Yeah. Wait, it'll be Brad Cruz. Yeah, Tom Pitt's better. <gasps> Brad Cruz. Oh my god, that sounds like an aspiring porn star. There you go. Uh, no, all porn stars are named Jake. <laughs> <laughs> if you have two seconds, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating or leave us a review. Uh, if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like Zombieland Double Tap. And in about a week and a half, we'll have an episode on... Uh, wait, no. Next nope. week. Next week. <laughs> we'll have an episode on Dr. Sleep, uh, which is hopefully going to be good. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Joe, what are we talking about next week, though? Oh, Trace, I am so excited for this. I am taking you to space Ugh. so that we can talk about flute playing. Uh, you do the fingering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I always do the fingering. <laughs> My asshole just twitched. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> So, for the first time on the podcast, we're covering an alien movie, and we're starting with Alien Covenant. (laughs) (laughs) A movie I really like, and you actively despise. I gave it three stars for Bloody Disgusting, and since then, my, I think, I I haven't even, I've only seen it. Halloween? Maybe. Yeah, actually, kind of, yes. No, because I haven't even seen it again. I've only seen it the one time. The more I thought about it, the more I was like, I really just didn't like that movie. (laughs) This is fair. It's not a crowd pleaser. Uh, so yeah, Alien Covenant next week, talking about Michael Fassbender fucking Michael Fassbender, or fingering Michael yes. Fassbender, I guess. Oh my god, yes. Ugh. <laughs> I, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, I'll just go look at his dick pics in shame. It's fine. Ugh. Speaking of 12-inch penises. Dude, right? Uh, but on that note, <laughs> <laughs> I think we can cross out Interview with the Vampire. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers.